Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're back in the continuing saga of the Julio-Claudian dynasty of Rome. We're also continuing the story of Emperor Gaius Julius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, more commonly known by his childhood nickname Caligula. In the previous episode, I documented Gaius's life from his privileged upbringing through the trauma of most of his early life and into the beginning of his reign as Emperor of Rome. Now we're finally into that part of Gaius's history that most people with knowledge of him have probably heard about. However, this episode will hopefully seek to debunk the more outlandish stories of Gaius Germanicus and show the truth behind a figure who was an obnoxiously rich man-child and a deeply troubled individual who history has turned into a bit of a punchline. Like, Gaius's reign was not a complete disaster, despite what shallower dives into history would have you believe. He definitely got major projects done and ingratiated himself with the Roman public. As I've said in past Julio-Claudian episodes, the history of the first imperial dynasty of Rome that's been handed down to us in the present is one of heavy bias, usually against the emperors. People like Suetonius, Tacitus, and Cassius Dio would have you believe that the emperors after Augustus were absolute monsters, instead of men who were still very much trying to figure out a system that had never been properly codified. On top of that, they had to compete with Augustus who did a pretty miraculous job without really having a proper guidebook to help him along. And again, to top that all off, you had vastly different personal politics between the people of the senatorial class and the lower socioeconomic classes of Rome. An emperor could not please both and hope to come out unscathed, both physically and mentally. That is not to say that Gaius Germanicus actually did a fantastic job. As we'll cover in just a bit, he definitely had some bad decisions he decided to run with as well as some terrible mood swings that would go on to harm basically everyone around him. As always with history, reality is pretty complicated, especially when it comes to people like Gaius Germanicus. So without further ado, let's continue the story. We're picking back up in Rome of the early 1st century CE in Gaius the God. <laughs> Let's jump right into the story proper. Only a few months after Gaius had been crowned as the new emperor of Rome in 37 CE, he was stricken with a serious illness and was bedridden for quite some time. This would become the mark in the proverbial sands of time that would signify the start to a new era of Gaius's reign. It's uncertain whether or not the illness was natural or brought on by poison. If it was the latter, which would be far from the first poisoning in Julio-Claudian history, it would surely paint Gaius's darker personality change in a different light. Instead of a man who might have realized death could come from nowhere due to natural causes, he was now a man who was paranoid and lashing out at anyone who was willing to get in his way. Both during and in the immediate aftermath of his brief dance with death, Gaius called out for a series of executions. Among those killed were Roman senators and his cousin-slash-adopted son, Tiberius Gemellus. However, Gaius also called for the death of the Praetorian prefect Macro. Macro had been Gaius's friend and confidant during the young man's several nightmarish years on the island of Capri with his imperial predecessor, Tiberius. 
It's also believed that either Gaius, Macro, or the pair working together killed the previous emperor of Rome. So even his friends weren't safe. However, almost all of that would be a disservice to the rest of Gaius's year in 38 CE. The Roman treasury was in a fantastic spot after Tiberius stole money from anyone he wished. In order to spread the wealth around, as well as to no doubt get people on his side, Gaius started spending buckets of money left and right. He was also very open with the state of Rome's finances, something Tiberius had kept very close to his chest. Certain taxes were abolished, funds were given to those who lost property to fires or other disasters. He even gave fantastic monetary prizes to competitors at gymnastic competitions. On top of all that, he started letting more citizens join the ranks of the equestrian and senatorial social classes, the two highest social ranks in Rome. Clearly, Gaius was making himself a champion of the common people, which meant that the Senate was very upset with him. This would go on to color the rest of his reign. However, all that public spending came to bite Gaius in the butt when 39 CE came rolling around and the treasury was now looking pretty empty. Or at least that's what Gaius' historical critics say. There are some reasons to believe that they were wrong about the exact state of the Roman economy considering financial expenses of future emperors. That's not to say that Gaius didn't spend an absolutely nightmarish amount of money that would possibly make even Jeff Bezos blush. It's just that if it turned out Gaius needed money, it was probably to line the folds of his own personal purse rather than that of his nation. So to get more funds, in 39 CE, Gaius turned the tables on his previous generosity. He brought in new taxes on things like weddings and prostitution. He possibly even sentenced citizens to death solely for the purpose of stealing their property. He also started auctioning off gladiators in the hopes of gaining new funds. It's possible that in his restructuring of the Roman economy, the emperor even started a famine that tore across the nation. However, Gaius was able to reclaim much of the money he had given out, whether that was public or personal funds, with all these ridiculous new economic practices. Despite that reclamation of wealth though, it was very clear that the man who was in charge was far from the golden light of hope Rome had been cheering for back in 37 CE. So, to get more funds, in 39 CE, Gaius turned the tables on his previous generosity. He brought in new taxes on things like weddings and prostitution. He possibly even sentenced citizens to death solely for the purpose of stealing their property. He also started auctioning off gladiators in the hopes of gaining new funds. It's possible that in his restructuring of the Roman economy, the emperor even started a famine that tore across the nation. However, Gaius was able to reclaim much of the money he had given out, whether that was public or personal funds, with all these ridiculous new economic practices. Despite that reclamation of wealth though, it was very clear that the man who was in charge was far from the golden light of hope Rome had been cheering for back in 37 CE. If there was one thing Gaius Germanicus loved, it was building projects. These projects ranged from things that actually helped the infrastructure of Rome to personal projects that only satisfied himself. The projects that his contemporary historians boasted as the most important were Gaius's rebuilding and improving of the ports in the city of Regium, 
modern-day Reggio di Calabria and various ports on the island of Sicily. These new ports allowed the grain trade from Egypt to skyrocket. If there was one thing that made the Roman citizens happy, it was grain from Egypt. Augustus basically made his early successes off of keeping the grain trade in check. Gaius also completed a couple of aqueducts that historical sources such as Pliny the Elder heralded as architectural genius. A temple to the deified existence of Augustus was also finally completed during the reign of Augustus after having been promised by the Senate basically right after Augustus passed away in 14 CE. He had many other temples built throughout the empire, with a few in the future being established to worship Gaius Germanicus himself. We'll get into that later. Of course, as a good Roman ruler, Gaius also had the roads of Rome, both the city and the empire, refurbished and also built new ones where needed. Entertainment was also necessary for Gaius's reign. For the public, he finished reconstruction on parts of the Theater of Pompey, the largest theater in Rome that had partially burned down during the reign of Tiberius. The emperor also ordered for the construction of a racetrack on the former property of his mother, Agrippina the Elder. The racetrack would not be completed until the reign of his successor. While the track was originally known as the Circus of Gaius, it would eventually become known as the Circus of Nero as the later emperor would make great use of it. Eventually, the racetrack was demolished by Emperor Constantine in order to make way for the original St. Peter's Basilica, which was then rebuilt into the modern-day St. Peter's Basilica. But also sticking with the Vatican for a moment, Gaius had an obelisk transported from Egypt that he had erected in the racetrack. This obelisk still remains in Vatican City where it's known as the Obelisk Vaticano. And it's just really weird to think that the Vatican is built on the grounds of a racetrack that just doesn't seem right. However, Gaius's most extravagant building projects revolved around the water. And no, I'm not talking about the ports he refurbished. Gaius Germanicus had at least three very large boats built that were considered absolutely massive by Imperial Roman standards. One ship, just known as Caligula's Giant Ship, was about 312 feet long, a little over 95 meters, and was about 21 meters wide, or about 69 feet across. The remains of the ship were found in the 1950s during the construction of Italy's Leonardo da Vinci International Airport. Historical dating places the construction of the ship to about 37 CE. However, Gaius also had two other ships built that in modern times are known as the Nemi ships due to the fact that they were discovered in Lake Nemi south of Rome. Both ships were at least 70 meters long, about 230 feet. One was larger than the other by about 10 feet. The smaller of the two ships was reported to be a floating temple to the goddess Diana, the Roman equivalent to the Greek goddess Artemis. The larger ship was recorded to be a floating pleasure palace for the emperor. The ships eventually somehow sank. Locals knew about the ships for centuries, but it wasn't until the 1920s when efforts were made to recover the ships. Unfortunately, both of the boats were destroyed by a bombing during World War II. Still on the topic of Gaius Germanicus and watery constructions, this brings us to our first fantastical story of the Emperor. In 39 CE, Gaius ordered for the construction of a pontoon bridge that stretched for two miles across the ocean from the port town of Baia to the city of Puteoli. 
According to the old stories, before he was crowned as emperor, Gaius met with a man named Thrasyllus, an astrologer slash psychic and personal friend of Emperor Tiberius. During these meetings, Thrasyllus told Gaius that he had no more chance of being emperor than riding a horse across the Gulf of Baia. Now, in reality, Thrasyllus was a fan of Gaius's. In fact, Gaius was sleeping with Thrasyllus's granddaughter. Anyway, the story says that in order to show Thrasyllus what for, Gaius had the bridge built so that it could be sturdy enough to ride across on his favorite horse, Incatatus. He adorned himself in gold and wore the breastplate of Alexander the Great, which I guess he just had? It's wild that the early Imperial Romans just had access to Alexander's body, but we, in the modern age, don't know where it is. Anyway, Gaius successfully crossed the bridge. However, there's no modern evidence of this bridge, at least not anything substantial, so it's entirely possible this was just a story created by later historians to make Gaius seem like a self-important crazed ruler. However, it's entirely possible he had the bridge built just to show off that he was indeed capable of ruling Rome, despite what any critics would say. But we've spent enough time on the home front. Let's see how Gaius dealt with things abroad. There are two major stories of Gaius dealing with his neighbors, one very much steeped in fairly normal history, and another that has gone on to become a classic Caligula story. Let's start with the one more entrenched fully in truth and reality. At this point in time, Rome held power over all the land that stretched across northern Africa, from Egypt to the Atlantic Ocean. However, a chunk of this land belonged to the client kingdom of Mauritania, a kingdom that covered parts of modern-day Algeria and Morocco. In 40 CE, Mauritania was being ruled by Ptolemy, known in Rome as Gaius Julius Ptolemaeus. Ptolemy was the grandson of Cleopatra and Mark Antony. He had dutifully served as a client king for years at this point, also having amassed a great deal of wealth in the process. Well, in 40 CE, Gaius decided to invite the Mauritanian king to Rome under the guise of friendship. The emperor confirmed Ptolemy as a friend and ally as well as the true king of Mauritania. And then Gaius had him murdered. The reasons behind it are unclear, though the most common theory is that Gaius Germanicus wanted to exert further power over the client kingdom and bring it fully under the control of Roman power, thus transforming it into a province. Apparently, Roman historian Cassius Dio wrote about the whole affair, but that specific chapter in his biography was lost to time. Some other historians have thrown around theories of jealousy down to a specific story of Gaius being jealous that a group of people in a theater both he and Ptolemy were at were gushing over Ptolemy's fancy purple cloak. Gaius had allegedly planned to divide the province in two, but an uprising forced these plans to be put on hold. They weren't followed through until after Gaius' death. But for now, Rome could say that all of northern Africa was truly in its grasp. But what about in the north? For ages, Rome had been fascinated with the prospects of annexing the island of Britannia. We're going to back up just a little bit from the episode with Ptolemy to the winter of 39 CE. Gaius had been waging a disastrous military campaign in Germania. 
Disastrous here means that Gaius had planned to campaign in Germania, but there were no actual rebelling German forces for him or his legions to fight. For the most part, the two legions he had raised for this were just busy doing military drills. Also, it's believed that the two legions were named the Legions Primogeniae, more or less meaning firstborn, which was allegedly in honor of Gaius's recently born daughter. Oh yeah, by the way, Gaius was married. He was, in fact, on his fourth wife by 39 CE. Around this time, a prince from Britannia made his way to Gaius in Germania after having fallen out of favor with his father, a king who ruled over much of southeastern Britain. After hearing the prince's story, Gaius suddenly decided it would be a great idea to turn west and try to sail to Britannia in order to actually conquer the island that his namesake, Gaius Julius Caesar, had failed to fully conquer almost a century ago. In early 40 CE, Gaius's legions arrived at the British Channel and made preparations to cross. The exact reasons for the following actions aren't exactly known, but when they were sailing to Britain, Gaius suddenly called for the ships to turn around. One theory is that peace had somehow been made with the local British tribes in the southeast, meaning it was no longer possible to fight against them. Ancient historians seem to insist that Gaius was simply too much of a coward to go through with the British invasion. The famous story really picks up when the legions arrived back in Gaul. The famous historical lie-slash-joke here is that suddenly stricken by madness, Gaius decided to wage war against the sea, calling upon his legions to fight against the very waves themselves. This... didn't happen. A much more believable anecdote is that, hoping to get some sort of treasure for his planned military triumph upon his return, Gaius ordered his troops to collect seashells from the shores of the British Channel. With this, it was almost as if Gaius could say he won a battle against Neptune, the Roman god of the seas. Now, that's slightly more believable, but it's still a bit weird. Seashells aren't that great of a prize. Maybe it is the truth, but we can dig a bit more into that story. The word that is used in the histories for the Grand Seashell Collection is concha, which is the Latin word for seashells. However, that's not the only meaning of the word. I'll also say that I'm basing this next assessment entirely off a journal article by David Woods, a professor of classics at the University College Cork. He says that there's two possible alternative meanings to the word concha. First, it was Roman slang for female genitalia. In this sense, it's possible that Gaius was dismissing his legions to enjoy the local brothels or other modes of pleasure. This isn't a stretch considering the word concha is used in the same sense in several Spanish-speaking countries, both as a seashell and as the slang term. Next option is that the emperor was engaging in a bit of wordplay. On several different occasions, Gaius was known to make up words to suit his needs, like he created a word that specifically means a man marching in a triumph. Professor Woods suggests that when Gaius used the word concha, he was using it to refer to something seashell-shaped. And do you know what's vaguely shaped like an open seashell? Boats! Specifically, smaller boats. In English, we have the term cockle to describe small boats that come from the Greek word for seashells. Perhaps Gaius was using it in the same way. Going with this line of thought, it would mean Gaius was commanding his soldiers to collect boats. 
Pooh's boats? Perhaps the Britons? Why did Gaius never actually make it to the island proper? Was it because he was scared or he no longer found a reason to do so? Or was it because he actually engaged in a battle within the British Channel? Victory or defeat, the Emperor decided to take some sunken British boats as spoils of war. Now again, all of this is just a theory. It's entirely possible that he did just use the word to mean seashells thinking it was a good idea for some reason. But let's move away from stories abroad. Let's go to another great story about Gaius that involves his horse. In order to talk about the horse, we first have to talk about Gaius and the Senate. The Emperor and the Senate very much did not get along. After all, after his brush with death, Gaius had ordered several senators to be put to death for seemingly no reason. It seemed as if, as his reign progressed, the Emperor was doing everything in his power to either make the Senate the butt of a joke or make it completely obsolete. Now again, most of the random stories we have from this time are hearsay, but if even half of them are true, it points to a period of several years where you really did not want to be on the Roman Senate. Gaius would allegedly force senators to run alongside his carriage if they wanted to talk with him. So unless you were a world champion marathon runner, odds are you weren't going to end up talking with Gaius Germanicus for long. There are also stories that say Gaius would invite senators and their wives over for fancy dinners. During the meal, he would take the senators' wives to other rooms of his palace and have his way with them. The senators would be forced to accept this unless they wanted to be killed. But even then, it was entirely possible that your life could be completely upended for seemingly no reason. Gaius would choose senators he found untrustworthy and strip their families of any historical honors they had achieved over the years. In 39 CE, Gaius just straight up had the two consuls for the year removed from office. He then decided to campaign in Gaul into the next year. The Senate was unsure how to move forward, so they literally just didn't meet for some of the time Gaius was away. This was in stark contrast to the reign of Tiberius. For several years, the previous emperor had been away from Rome, and the Senate operated perfectly fine. People had been scared of Tiberius. His grandson was on a whole different level. During his time in Gaul, Gaius uncovered a conspiracy that would have disastrous results for almost everyone he knew personally, which we'll get into in a little bit later. Upon his return, the Senate wanted to congratulate him for a good campaign in uncovering this conspiracy. However, they weren't exactly sure what sort of honor should go along with this. Now, Gaius was already furious about things in general, but he let his fury out on the Senate and told them he would make their lives hell. More senatorial deaths followed. Gaius then played a horrible mind game with the senators. He promised there would be no more deaths. However, several traitors to his regime still sat within the walls of the senate. Who knew what would happen if they somehow managed to get into Gaius's way once again? This turned the senate on each other. Sure, most of the Senate probably hated Gaius, but they were also willing to live a life of humiliation if it meant staying alive. They started looking for any signs of weakness in each other. 
This culminated in one senator, Scribonius Proculus, being killed in the Senate House when a friend of the Emperor approached him there and loudly implied that Scribonius hated the Emperor. Truly, the Senate had been turned into a horrific circus. Gaius took notice of this at one point and made a joke about how senators were so useless that he could put his horse in the Senate, or make it consul, and things could possibly be better. Now, this joke has been spread over the many years to the point where some people mistakenly believe that Gaius really made his horse a senator or consul. However, it was actually much better to be Gaius's favorite horse than it was to be a senator. This specific horse was named Incitatus. While there is no historical record 100% making this connection, I believe that Incitatus was also the horse Gaius Germanicus rode when he crossed the pontoon bridge. I also hope I can say right here that Gaius absolutely did not put Incitatus into the Senate. He may have hated the institution, but that would have even been too much of a stretch for the Emperor. That's not to say that Incitatus didn't live what was claimed to be the most ridiculously lavish life otherwise. Some historians claim that Gaius had a separate palace built for his favorite steed. Incitatus was given saddles and bridles adorned with gold and all sorts of precious gems. On top of that, the emperor even had servants that specifically attended to Incitatus at the horse's palace. Gaius would even invite senators to dinner only to have the senators realize they would not be at a party for the emperor, but his horse. Gaius's treatment of his favorite horse could obviously be read as the workings of the mind of a man who was clearly not all there. However, maybe Gaius was actually smarter than all that. What if the ridiculous amount of wealth both given to and spent on Incitatus was a ploy to further humiliate the Senate? Because, yeah, it was better to be a horse than a member of the Roman political elite. Or hey, maybe the guy just really loved his horse. If it's a compelling story for one of the hardest bosses in Elden Ring, why can't it be a compelling, if not a bit farcical, story in real life? What do you do if the leader of the government starts proclaiming that they are a living god? Well, if you lived in places like ancient Egypt or Persia, this was pretty much par for the course. Yeah, of course your pharaoh or king of kings was a living god. Things were very much not that way in Rome. You could only become a god after you died, and only if the senate and other legal bodies voted that it was okay. At this point in recent Roman history, only Julius Caesar and Augustus had been granted those honors. Not even Livia had been given godhood, though spoiler alert, she would later. Well, I'm sure you can guess where this line of thought is leading. Around 40 CE, Gaius began referring to himself as a god. He would dress himself in clothing that clearly represented him as divine beings such as Jupiter, Hercules, and Venus. Yes, Gaius was not discriminating in the gender of his godhood. He even had several official documents refer to him as Jupiter. On top of that, a couple temples were built for the sole worship of Gaius Germanicus, and a few others were forced to join this new cult. One such temple was the Temple of Castor and Pollux, which had become a cult of worship for the imperial family as a concept during the reign of Augustus. He soon started ordering for the heads of statues depicting deities to be removed, having his own head substituted to complete the sculpture. In Egypt, coins were printed that depicted Gaius as a god of the sun. 
In some speeches, Gaius even called himself Neos Helios, meaning the new sun. You'd think that maybe he would extend this divine status to his family, given the fact that Gaius' relationship with his sisters was possibly... well, who can say. But no. Well, one of his sisters was already dead and Gaius had forced the Senate to ascend her to godhood. However, Gaius' two living sisters, Agrippina and Julia Lavilla, were not given these honors. In fact, they were no longer in Rome by 40 CE. Remember that conspiracy I mentioned a little bit ago? Well, while Gaius was out campaigning, he had received word that there was going to be an attempted coup led by a Roman general named Gatilicus. He wanted to oust Gaius and replace him with Marcus Lepidus, the husband of Gaius's late sister Drusilla. This would have been a massive shock to the Emperor considering some historians believe that Gaius and Lepidus were actually sleeping together. Well, Gaius being the man who he was decided that this meant Lepidus was actually also in on the plot. And who knows, maybe he was. What are you supposed to do when your boyfriend betrays you? Both Catilicus and Lepidus were executed for treason. Julia Lavilla, Agrippina, and Agrippina's son Lucius were exiled. However, they were only exiled after being tried for the crime of adultery. Really, the only member of the Julio-Claudian family left in Rome besides Gaius was his uncle Claudius, who was treated like trash due to perceived notions that Claudius was mentally incapable of being a leader. The only people the emperor could trust were his wife, Melonia Caesonia, and their daughter, Drusilla. Although, saying Gaius trusted his wife was possibly even a stretch because he treated her very poorly. He had barely any family left, probably not many true friends. He definitely didn't have the support of the Senate or Praetorian Guards. I don't actually know if Incatatus was still alive by the time 41 CE rolled around. I hope so. Man, I hope that horse continued living a great life, being quite honest. So, it should be a surprise to no one that a very dark cloud was starting to hover over the Imperial Palace. A storm was coming. It was just a matter of time as to when lightning would strike. And on that ominous note, we are going to hit the pause button on Gaius Germanicus's story once more. We are almost at the end of his story, but what happens next does deserve at least a decent chunk of its own episode. So next time we're in Rome, it will be curtains for Gaius as we move on to the reign of his successor. Who could possibly step in after this tumultuous several years that Rome called Gaius Germanicus its leader? I mean, this is history, so we know the answer. It's his uncle Claudius, that same guy I said was so unassuming that Gaius never exiled him. But how on earth does a man who was constantly told that he was never fit for the role of emperor end up on the throne? Well, that's also what we'll find out for next time. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. The show is once more going on its end of season break, so I hope to talk to y'all later in about a month when we return. And when the show does return, we are going to be looking at the beginnings of a very important role in Tibetan Buddhism. That's right, it's the story of the first Dalai Lama. 
I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.